Bannon. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Restaurant Fiction, the podcast where we review fictional restaurants, bars, and clubs in TV and film. I'm your host, Monis Rose, and today we are going to review The Forge. The Forge is prominently featured in the Cinemax show Banshee. For those of you who are foreign to Banshee, first of all, shame on you, but it's never too late to join the party. I learn that every single day of my life. Banshee is like every single amazing, awesome, bitchin' 80s action movie rolled up into one, but the TV show version. Now, of all people who know The Forge, we got Jonathan Tropper. He is one of the co-creators and showrunner of Banshee. Probably even knows it a thing or two. Uh, better than even we do. So we had him on. We picked The Forge because of all shows out there, Banshee rests on the shoulders of this bar that pretty much the entire story of the main character would have never existed if he never even went to this bar in the first place, which is featured in the pilot episode. Before we begin our interview with Jonathan, where he provides some insight into the show, the creation of it, and also some advice to novice and veteran writers. A couple of caveats. First of all, Jonathan mentioned some of the show's characters. Uh, Those will be Lucas Hood, Job, Sugar Bates, Proctor. Yes, all characters of the show Banshee. So uh, that's what he's talking about there. Now, here's the review of The Forge and interview with Jonathan Tropper. We at Restaurant Fiction, we went to this place called The Forge. And The Forge is a general store, or it's like, excuse me, it's like a general store, and it's off the beaten train tracks. It's actually on the wrong side of the train tracks. It's uh, near Highway 39 in Pennsylvania, uh, next to, for those who are not familiar with Pennsylvania, it's uh, next to Amish country. So why and how did we, uh, Restaurant Fiction, pick the Forge? So we like uh, bars that are not really hidden, and they're not really hidden gems. It's just no one goes to them. Uh, no, no, no locals go to them, and no regulars go to them. Uh, who really visits places like the Forge are drifters. They're like vagabonds. Uh, these are the men and women who come and go, and really, people they don't really want people to uh, know about them. They just want a good stiff drink. Um, that being said. We liked The Forge because when you go inside, it's dark, it's dank, it's dreary. Uh, You get the impression that people have either died in this place, in The Forge, or they have actually sought redemption. Um, And that's a 
that's actually a good thing. So in terms of the actual liquor itself, it's pretty much top shelf hard liquor. Uh, we actually, they have a really stiff, uh, you know, Balvini double wood. Of course, being in Pennsylvania, there is Jungling on tap. You got to have the Jungling, of course. Underneath the bar, if the bartender does like you, he does have a uh, unmarked bottle, which we have deemed Grandpappy sauce, and it tastes, uh, it's pretty much a place for fights. I don't mean to, or us at Restaurant Fiction, we don't condone fighting, we don't condemn fighting, but there are many uh, bars in the world, in the U.S., that are meant for fights. You know, we um, particularly like a bar called the Double Deuce, and this one in particular, you know, there is always, for whatever reason, a fight that's going to happen. And that being said, and if you are at the Forge during this particular time, everything is on the house. The food, the drink, I mean, uh, it's really meant for you to keep quiet. Um, it's also for meant for you to hopefully... Uh, come back again. And us at Restaurant Fiction, we always like free drinks and free food. All right, so Jonathan, uh, how was that review? Uh, what did you, uh, what was wrong? What was right? And how would you, uh, how, what would you add or enhance about it? I think um, that's pretty much on the nose. You know, it's a bar that, it's really a no-frills bar that was set up more as a place for the bartender sugar baits to just, uh, hide away in and while away the, you know, his twilight years in and, uh, you know, he'll pour you whatever you've got to drink and he'll, if you want to order food, no matter what you order, you're going to basically get, you know, steak and fries unless it's the morning where you might be lucky enough to get some eggs and, uh, I think the menu is probably pretty basic and limited no matter what. I think it'd be really hard to find a good salad in Banshee, but, uh, you know, it's the kind of bar that the people who would want to go to a bar like that will find and no one else will ever find because it's really not on the it's not on the beaten track, that's for sure. You certainly don't ask for a cocktail. How much time goes into the development of The Forge? With the show Banshee, we had a notion that everything about Banshee is that everything used to be something else. Um, you know, we have... Uh, we have a gangster who used to be Amish. We have a cop who used to be a criminal. Um, our police station, uh, you know, working on those themes of identity, you know, our police station used to be a used car dealership. Um, so, you know, we really try to go at everything in Banshee having sort of a repurposed identity. So the forge, uh, the notion was that before it became a bar, it was an old blacksmith shop. <clears throat> and that's why it's called the forge. There are still um, tools of the trade left there. there. There's a huge, sm you know, smelting pot, and there's, you know, some of the gears and the and the tools that blacksmith use, the hammer and uh, whatever you call those big tongs they use to get things out of the fire, as well as the fire pit. All of that is still in the forge and on the walls. Um, it hasn't been removed because it probably would take too much effort and work to remove it and then repair the floor. So it just becomes part of the atmosphere. And the idea is that, you know, this, like everything else in Banshee, used to be something else. That's also why the dimensions of the bar are kind of unusual. Like, you have the bar and you have these tables, but you also have sort of a high ceiling and, and a cavernous room because of what it used to be. 
Um, and so that was the initial idea of it, and we wrote that into the script. And then, uh, you know, once we were getting made and we had production designers involved, um, you know, they began imagining that, uh, you know, what that really looks like and feels like, and we ended up with the forge. Yeah. How does the forge enhance the characters, either Sugar or the sheriff or anybody else? Well, I think it really just um, grounds them into the kind of characters they are. You know, all the other characters you meet on the show live in, you know, some of them live in luxury and some of them live, you know, in more modest accommodations. But, you know, Sugar and Lucas Hood live, Sugar lives behind the forge, Lucas lives above the bar next to the forge. And I mean, when you live in a place like that, you're basically um, kind of, you know, admitting to yourself and putting out to anyone who watches that you're somebody who hasn't lived a conventional life, who doesn't have conventional attachments, and uh, who basically has nothing in the world, uh, you know, can pick up and leave tomorrow without having much to leave behind. And so I think, you know, when you see Lucas's accommodations, which are very much an extension of the Forge, and when you see, you know, sugar in the Forge, you just kind of realize that these are people who sort of have gone through life you know, had some highs and lows and ended up in a place where they recognize each other as sort of, you know, misfits and outcasts. To me, it was just a place where we could, you know, foster that really kind of unstated um, uh, tone of, of masculine friendship, which is something that I find um, isn't done a lot on television, but I just wanted there to be, in a sense, some kind of man cave where you know, these guys could return to lick their wounds and, and connect with each other. And so, you know, probably my favorite scenes to write overall for years were just, you know, the scenes where Lucas, uh, Sugar, and Job are in the forge because it was a, you could write with a certain tone and you could really get into, you know, the way men relate to each other, you know, non-verbally as well as verbally to sort of support each other. And that's what the forge really became for me. As a writer, does it allow you to have a breathing room? Yeah, well, that's what it became. I mean, it started out as the birthplace of Lucas Hood because in the first episode, that's where he witnessed the murder of the real Lucas Hood, killed the guys who did it, and ultimately, you know, picked up the badge and became Lucas Hood. So, you know, in that sense, the forge was his origin story. It was his birthplace. But what it grew into was sort of the place where our lead character could return to over and over again and just kind of, you know, some shows have confessionals, you know, some of the comedies have confessionals where, you know, every five minutes or so one of the actors is talking to the camera about how he feels. And, you know, we're a drama and we certainly aren't touchy-feely like that, but it was a place where, you know, Lucas could go lick his wounds, um, hear truth from sugar and kind of, it was a place of, you know, sort of no bullshit male bonding and uh, connection, and that's what it became. For the series finale, you bookended pretty much uh, the whole series with the last scene in The Forge. Uh, why? The sort of the psychic energy of Lucas Hood, it's The Forge. The Forge is where he started, and The Forge is where he kept returning to, and that was his base. And he was never comfortable wearing the police uniform. He was never comfortable lying about who he was, you know, in Banshee, but when he came to the Forge, he got to be who he really was with the only people who knew who he really was. And so, you know, in fact, every time he walked through those doors, he was, in a sense, that was the only time that he was his genuine, true self. So that made, made perfect sense that that's the place where he would say goodbye as well. 
Excellent, excellent. What's what's the craziest uh, pitch that you've heard concerning a scene in the forge? Well, we did talk about Proctor burning it. <laughs> really? Yeah, and then you know we just couldn't bear to do it, but we did have a whole pitch when it becomes clear in season three that Sugar has sided with Lucas Hood over his old friend Proctor. We had this idea that Lucas would drive up to it one night and it would be, you know, on fire. In the end, in season four, we had Proctor burn down Lucas's cabin, but um, yeah, in season three, we, we did talk about burning down the forge at the end of the season. We also kind of knew that between season three and season four, we were going to move from North Carolina to Pittsburgh, so it seemed like a good way to get rid of uh, a really expensive set we would have to rebuild, but... At the same time, we just couldn't bear to get rid of it because it had become really the you know the emotional center of the show. Where would you rather go? Would you rather go to the Forge or to the Savoy? Uh, to me, it would always be the Forge. I like quiet, and I really don't like strip clubs. Um, that that set, the Savoy Strip Club that we built, is probably the biggest set we ever built because um, it had a lot going on there. It had multiple levels, and it had offices in the back and changing rooms for the girls. It was you know it was basically a functional the size of a functional strip club. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I would doubt the drinks there were as good. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, the days we shot in the Savoy, the crew always had a little more spring in their steps, you know, because we did bring in, you know, 15 strippers every time we shot there. And, uh, you know, those guys spent a lot of their weekend dollars. How much detail needs to be uh, created and developed when creating, say, a world set in the Forge or any or a bar that you put into one of your shows? It's, it's tremendous. I mean, the, the work people do, I mean, the, the thing that production design and then set deck do, yeah, it's incredible. Like, every picture hanging on the wall behind Sugar, you would never even notice them. But, like, like if there's a newspaper clipping about one of his prize fights from when he was a fighter back in the day, um, we wrote the article, and the article was put on age newspaper print and put in there with the picture. And like, So if you were to walk through the bar, nothing would be fake, even the things the cameras can't pick up. You know, all sorts of pictures and mementos, you know, the, the creases in the seats, um, the stickiness of the tables from years of, you know, beer slop, like it's all in there. And... You know, we would sometimes sit in there doing work while they were shooting on the next stage, and you just feel like you're in a real place for the most part. Except there's no air conditioning, but you know, of course, <laughs> probably wouldn't have air conditioning anyway. But it's, um, yeah, the detail is incredible. Like every every little thing on the walls, every dent in them, every you know, every piece of damage and wear and tear is all actually crafted. What advice do you have on writing a bar in a TV show? You want to sort of think about. How is this bar made? You know, what's the history of this place? Where did it come from? How did he come to own it? Who are the people who come here? And that's what sort of gives you the ability to sort of, you know, build it and and build it on the page in a way that, you know, when the production designers get to it, you're going to end up with something unique so that every time you shoot in that bar over the course of your series, the viewer will immediately you know, latch onto the mood because they're very familiar with the place as well. Wow, wow. And I mean, and did that kind of involvement, uh, that creation, did you put the same time into Warrior in terms of creating yeah, the bar? Yeah, and it's, yeah, just a few weeks ago we were dealing, I have, in Warrior, which takes place in the 1870s uh, in San Francisco, you know, we have a bar in, 
you know, in, in Warrior, an Irish pub, and when it um, when the first drawings came through, you know, it looked a little bit plain to me, and so I began talking to the production designer, and I said, listen, this is a bar that an Irish immigrant put together over probably 15 or 20 years. First he bought one little shop, then the shop next to him went for sale, and he bought that, and then he had a wait to save the money to knock down the wall between them, and then he finally got the third shop, so this can't look like a clean, square bar. This has to look like a bar that was cobbled together over 20 years by an Irish immigrant, uh, you know, living the dream, and, and that greatly informed the way the production designer went back you know, to the drawing board and came up with something much more irregular, much more kind of makeshift, something that's just coming into its own now. And, and you can feel that when you look at the drawings. I can't, I can't tell you what it feels like to stand in it yet because they've only just started building it. But it's, uh, that, that's how you try to go about it, by giving, giving, you know, the locations as much character development as the characters. Well, and it'll also probably even enhance uh, your actors that you cast when they walk into the set. It would even f feel more real to them. Right, and then at the same time, you have the practical considerations. Like, we plan to have fights in this bar, so we need to make sure, you know, there's room for that. We can't have all the tables fixed to the floors. We don't want booths because you know, that won't give us enough room for fights. And, you know, you have to also have, you know, where are the cameras going to go? There has to be, you know, logistical planning that comes in, but that always comes in after you first sort of arrive at what the character of the bar is. What elements uh, do you look for when staffing a writer's room? Um, I, I do a different kind of writer's room than a lot of shows, and... I don't like a writer's room that goes on for months and months and months. I think that's a big waste of resources that comes out of your show's budget. So I generally only like to do a writer's room for two or three months, break out the episodes, you know, 10 episodes. I'm doing premium cable. If I was, obviously, if I was doing network and I was doing 22 episodes, that would be different. But I like to you know, do a room for just a few months, break out 10 episodes in pretty good detail, um, and then send writers off to write. Um, and then when their drafts come back in, either reconvene again for a month or else just give them notes and keep going. But I've never had a writer's room going while the show is being shot, which I think makes us rare. Usually uh, the writer's room is still ongoing while the show starts to be shot. And I just always like showing up on location with all of my episodes written so that you, know, you can develop a lot of efficiencies in terms of how you plan your shooting once you have all the episodes. So it's just it's a it's a very short, intense uh, writers room that goes for a few months, and then two or three of the writers in there stay on and become producing writers and write episodes with me, and uh, you know are around to produce them, and you know and then we go start the next season with another room. How often do you take uh, new writers versus well-established writers? I used to only hire pretty established writers. Um, my philosophy on that has changed over time. I now feel like. You know, a good writer who's, you know, who's still young but is a good writer can write every bit as good an episode as an established TV writer. To me, I just want them to have enough experience that I know, you know, they've written, you know, 60-page episodes before that they understand how to work off an outline. Um, but beyond that, you know, I, I don't really, to me, it's not about how much, how long they've been around. It's more just looking at some samples of their own original work and seeing if there's a strong voice there that I think would lend itself to uh, my show.
How many rewrites do you do on a script? It never, it never stops. Honestly, like I've probably done on the pilot for Warrior, I'm probably up to my sixth or seventh draft now, and it'll keep going until after we shoot because you know you're constantly making adjustments. Like first, you know, you're just getting notes from the other producers. You're getting notes from the network. Then, you know, you start uh, the physical production process and you realize, oh, you know, we're not going to have the budget for that crazy helicopter shot, so i got to come up with something different for that. And, you know, we're building these sets, we're not going to have that exterior, so i got to come up with something different for that. So, you know, then you start rewriting to budget and to actual living sets. And then you're casting, and then depending on who you cast and what their strengths and weaknesses are, you may start rewriting to them a little bit, and then... You know, the actors get involved and start troubleshooting the scenes and, you know, you start hearing them out loud and realizing, you know, that's a little too talky. And, I mean, you're, you're constantly fine-tuning it until you shoot it and then, you know, after you shoot it, you still sometimes end up fine-tuning it in post a little bit. So I couldn't really tell you how many, but it just never stopped. Gotcha. And why, uh, why put a bar or a restaurant in, in a TV show, in any TV show? Nobody wants to watch characters just standing in a room talking or sitting in a living room talking. You know, a bar and a restaurant gives you a place. First of all, you can fill it with extras. You can put them in the public. You can give them distractions. You can give them something to be doing. You can, in, in, uh, you know, you can include other characters. Um, it's just, it, it's a plot engine as well as a good place to talk. So it's just, you know, that's the reason, it's, you know, they've been using it since, you know, since time began, there's always been restaurants and bars and movies and TV. We couldn't have said that better ourselves because, honestly, that's what restaurant fiction's about. Now, that was one hell of an interview. I mean, we learned a lot. Uh, my highlights were there was a functional strip club. That was pretty, pretty funny. Also, what was really insightful that sort of writer's room that uh, Jonathan creates or that anti-writer's room. And it brings to the question, I guess, makes me think and makes maybe writers out there think, is that going to be a trend? Uh, will uh, paid cable streaming networks and also broadcast um, diminish the generic or whatever one thinks of is the writer's room and just do it uh, Jonathan Tropper's way? So that is also interesting. Oh, one last thing. We received word from Jonathan that he will be back, and he will be talking about the pub featured in Warrior once uh, it's released. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to the Jonathan Tropper interview on Restaurant Fiction. If uh, you want a lot of Jonathan Tropper besides watching his stuff on DVD, the uh, Banshee episodes, of course, and also on Cinemax Go. You can read his novels. Unfortunately, do not expect the high-octane action from the TV shows translated into his books. His books are quite different. And for more reviews of Restaurant Fiction, please go to restaurantfiction.com. I'm Honest Rose, and keep it real, keep it fresh, and always keep it on the flip side. Cut to... Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night.
Lowe's is here to help pros put more toward their bottom line with special Labor Day savings on what you need to get the job done. Like $40 off your choice of a DeWalt 12-volt max drill or 12-volt max impact driver featuring DeWalt's all-new 12-volt battery platform, now just $99. And whether updating a property or building new homes, save up to 15% off select custom windows and doors. Whatever the day, whatever the job, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 9-1, U.S. only. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.